Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, You may want to go to Amazon and check out our book on understanding viruses. Just type in Finding Genius. This was a book created by interviewing over 100 virologists and then re-interviewing a a top 25. Uh, I think the book has a lot of super interesting concepts in it. So again, check it out on Amazon by Finding Genius. Today, my guest is Dr. Rabi Abati. She's a breast surgeon at West Suburban Medical Center and the medical director of the River Forest Breast Cancer Center, or Breast Care Center. We're going to talk about her work. So, Rabia, thank you for coming. Most welcome, Rich. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your history. How did you end up uh, being a surgeon, and why a breast surgeon? Well, I'm thrilled to be here today. You know, I think I was meant to be a surgeon. Uh, As I tell my students, I think I was born a surgeon. I uh, was always thrilled by the surgeons who were being uh, portrayed in the media, or I could read their autobiographies. And so I wanted to be part of this cadre of people who will, you know, touch patients and actually put their hands in the patients and remove diseased organs. So that's what sort of piqued my interest in the beginning. And then when I went to medical school, I just loved operating and being in the, in the team of people who actually ends up giving really rapid cure for our patients. But as I evolved as a general surgeon, I realized that I wanted to not just cure patients by taking care of the diseased organs, but also I wanted to be a healer. I wanted to take care of the whole patient. And so I started uh, spending more time with my patients, which is, as you know, a little uncommon with surgeons. We 
you know, like to kind of do things quickly and then move on. But I wanted to be a surgeon who will also be a healer for our patients. And that made me sort of concentrate my uh, work at, in breast cancer. And so I'm uh, now taking care of breast cancer patients. How long have you been doing surgeries and uh, what, what have you noticed? What has changed over the years with the type of surgeries you do? Okay, so I've been in practice for about over 20 years as a general surgeon and then as a breast surgeon. And in the beginning, when I was in uh, residency, uh, we would be taking a lot of our patients to the operating room for even making a diagnosis of breast cancer. So that has changed uh, remarkably over the last 20 plus years that now we are doing minimally invasive biopsies in our office. So which means, you know, less discomfort for the patient, we are able to give them a quick diagnosis without putting them through a major surgery. Also, we have now started seeing this change in the way we used to think about breast cancer. In the beginning, we used to think about breast cancer as being a surgical problem, that once a surgeon comes in the picture, the breast cancer can be cured. But actually, we know that the surgeon is only one small cog in the entire wheel of the treatment for breast cancer. And so breast cancer is now a multidiscipline process. And so we cannot work in isolation and take care of breast cancer patients alone. So that's been another change in the breast cancer treatment. And then also in terms of the surgeries themselves, we are now trying to do more cosmetic surgeries, less mutilating surgeries, performing more reconstructions, offering more options for patients to preserve their breasts rather than performing mastectomies or removal of their breasts from the get-go. So we have become now more minimally invasive, but also becoming more comprehensive in terms of how we are providing care for our patients. Yeah, I guess many years ago, the breast removals for cancer were incredibly like crazy radical. They would take out the breast and a lot of the underlying tissue and the muscle and everything, right? Yes, absolutely. And those were called the radical mastectomies, uh, where we would remove the the breast and the tissues in the armpit, we would remove the muscles. And so it was very deforming, you would, you know, get this scar, which would be kind of concave, it would be you could see the patient's ribs and the chest wall and, uh, and uh, surgeries are very painful also. But now we are doing more and more of skin sparing mastectomies where we save the entire skin overlying the breast and just remove the breast and the nipple and the areola area. Or we are doing what's called nipple sparing mastectomies where we don't remove any skin or nipple, but we just remove the entire breast tissue. And all these advances have been made possible by the use of obviously instruments in our operating room, which are more lighted. We have lighted retractors, we have headlights and um, our uh, devices that are used for cutting the breast tissue are more uh, friendly for the skin. So we don't end up burning the skin as much. So it's, it's uh, been this, uh, these advancements that have led to these uh, amazing surgeries that we are doing nowadays. And obviously we are offering reconstruction to most of our patients, which means that they end up getting immediate breast reconstruction at the time of the mastectomies. Okay. Yeah. In the days when they would do like these radical mastectomies, cancer would still come back with certain people. Yes. And now that you're being a lot less invasive, do you still get the same level of clinical outcomes? Is it better? Is it worse or the same? So this is one thing we, we actually figured out about 30, 40 years ago that cancer cannot be treated by surgery. The reason that patients would die or the cancer would come back on the chest wall is because the biology of the cancer was such that we were not really going to be able to cure it just with the surgery. So with the, with the advent of, you know, chemotherapy 
and radiation treatment. And now that we are going into even genomics, which is looking at the genes of the cancer itself, we have seen now that the, our survival rates have improved remarkably because we are able to catch cancer at an earlier stage and then treat it with different modalities along with surgery. So even though it's a lot less radical, a lot less invasive, the yeah. outcomes haven't suffered at all, which is good. Yes, absolutely. And so that's the fun part about surgery. Now we can tell our patients, you're going to be living for a long, long time. And as you know, there are the many millions of survivors, breast cancer survivors now who are who are living in, uh, with the history of having had breast cancer. So that's really hopeful for our patients. Is there any need for surgery at all? I mean, I know it's a weird question, you know, breast <laughs> surgery, but if, if radical didn't work, if, you know, less invasive is working to the same level, yeah. like has anyone tested just, I mean, doing other modalities of treatment, but no surgery at all? Exactly. So that's a very good question. And we actually have seen now, based on our clinical experience, that patients who receive chemotherapy who have certain kind of cancers, so certain cancers which are, you know, HER2 positive. So as you know, all cancers are not alike. So we are talking about specific subset of uh, cancers where we can give them chemotherapy and immunotherapy prior to surgery. And when we go in to do the surgery, there will usually be no cancer left behind where cancer used to be present. So that has led us to start some clinical trials and to see if there will be, this will obviate the need for any surgery with the use of these multiple modalities. But we don't have any clinical trials right now on invasive cancer, but there are trials going on on carcinoma in situ or the early stage, stage zero breast cancer, where um, they are trying to see if, if surgery can be avoided and the patients can be treated just with uh, hormonal treatment or radiation, et cetera. So we are waiting for the trials to come around and I think this will be probably not in my lifetime, but, you know, afterwards, I'm hoping that surgery may not be necessary in all the patients. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, what do they call the time between this, the resection and cancer coming back? Is there like, is it called like a latency period? And, you know, with these less invasive surgeries, has that period changed length at all? Right. So you're talking about their five-year survival. So we are looking at cancer, um, you know, in terms of five-year survival generally, or 10-year survival. And using all these modalities, along with our surgery, we are have able to we have been able to, to reduce the recurrence rate, which means the chance of cancer coming back and have improved the survival rate. So now with the early stage breast cancer, which is stage zero and stage one cancer, which hasn't spread to the lymph nodes, the five-year survival could be anywhere from 95 to 99%. And then, you know, it goes for localized cancer, which is staying in the breast and, has, and in the lymph nodes, the survival rate is about 86%. So it has improved over time. 
since the you know advent of all these other modalities you know again five year survival it sounds like do i live or die after five years but you know let's say after a resection is done you know at about a year and a half i'm just making this up that you know they do a test and cancer will either come back or not typically let's say the uh, average length is a year and a half has yeah. that changed since the days of uh, the radical work okay. versus now cancer is not the same as you know there are many different kinds of cancers so the cancers that are are called hormone positive cancers they usually come back much later so not at 5 years but sometimes at 10 years even up to 20 years so that time obviously will is much longer as opposed to cancers which are called triple negative cancers which are not don't have any hormone receptors on the cancers or are her2 positive cancers these cancers have a risk of coming back the highest risk in within the first 2 years but then if it doesn't come back in 2 years then the risk goes down over time as long as they had treatment so the 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 latency period i guess you're saying between the time that you complete treatment and of uh, cancer coming back has increased based on of these other modalities that we are now using for treatment of breast cancer. Well, that's good. So it's all positive. So it's less uh, invasive, the yeah. latency period's longer, the outcomes yeah. are better. So it's all right. good so far. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is as I tell my patients, you know, it's bad that you have cancer because most of my patients do have breast cancer, but I'll say it's the best time in our lives to have breast cancer because we have such excellent treatments available and the prognosis is so good. So you know we as long as we follow through with the treatment we will have an excellent outcome obviously every case is different so i cannot give you one number for every patient but on average our our survival and our recurrence rates have gone down and then in terms of mammography i've heard that yeah. some women have dense breast tissues they need to have i guess an mri instead like what are the nuances of mammography and how has it changed okay so you know as you said earlier i am um, medical director for the breast program at river forest medical center so we just had a new mammography unit installed in our building and uh, it's called the 3d hologic genius unit and which has been now approved by fda as being superior to uh, the re- traditional uh, mammography units for detection of cancer in dense breast So dense breast means that the breast has more fibrous and glandular tissue as opposed to fatty tissue and women between the ages of 40 and 50 have about a 50% chance of having dense breast and in the dense breast the chances of missing a cancer is two uh, out of two two patients you may miss cancer in one of them with the dense breast so that's a pretty significant issue and you know in 2004 there was a phd student in connecticut by the name of uh, nancy capello capello who uh, was given a clean bill of health and then 3 weeks later she was found to have stage 3 breast cancer if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes and she made it her life mission to start informing patients and physicians about the breast density and because of her we were able to have a breast density notification laws passed in over 30 states including in Illinois in 2019 so any woman who has dense breasts which are called heterogeneously dense or very dense breasts will end up uh, being eligible for getting either a 3D tomography or an ultrasound or an MRI so we usually start with an ultrasound and then go on to an MRI if it's needed 
And I always tell my patients, you know, understand your breath, know your breath density, because a lot of our patients don't know that. So that's the way you take charge of your health by knowing that you have dense breath. And if you do, then you request your physicians to uh, order another additional testing for you. And it should be approved by the insurance company. So thank well, you. What, happen, what happens in ultrasound where it doesn't work and you have to go for MRI? What, what governs that decision? Okay. So, so mammography, as you know, is based on uh, you know x-ray. So x-rays are cutting through the breast tissue, giving you slices and you look through those. But when you have dense breasts, then the x-rays don't work. And so we use ultrasound or sonography to determine if there's anything in the breast tissue. Now, sometimes patients have uh, either a very strong family history or they've had prior cancer or the breast tissue is such that even on ultrasound, you can't really tell what's going on. In that case, uh, we would recommend an MRI. So what we do is we calculate every single patient's risk of developing breast cancer based on what's called a Tyrer Q6 score. So it's a score that looks at multiple factors, and I wouldn't bore you with all that, but involving you know family history and various questions about their age at the time of the first periods, if they've had children, et cetera. And using that number, we decide if a patient should get an MRI, because if their lifetime risk of getting breast cancer is more than 20%, then they will usually get an MRI uh, along with the mammogram. By the way, an average woman's risk of getting breast cancer in the United States is about 12%, 12 to 13%. So if that's pretty high. Yeah, that's pretty high. But if it's over 20%, then the MRIs will be recommended. Oh, what fact, what kind of early screening goes on to see which tranche of uh, risk you're in, how risky you're, like, what do they look for to establish that? Okay, very good. So that's where uh, what we do is we have high risk clinics where we start screening women at a much earlier age based on their family history. So you start with the family history because that's the only tool we have right now to determine if patient is higher risk for getting breast cancer. And then, you know, we uh, have these patients come in and they see, you know, a physician who is, who deals with high risk patients. So like I do, I, I do high risk uh, counseling for these patients. And so we will determine, uh, you know, what are their risks? We give them a score. And then based on the score, we will decide if they need imaging earlier than the required age of 40 and above. So we may even start imaging at an earlier age, depending on the family history and their risk score. And this imaging helps us detect cancer at an early stage. Also, we tell these patients about what are the other lifestyle risk factors that they can change to reduce their risk, which includes exercise, which has been shown to reduce the risk by even 30%, changing your diet, avoiding red meat and sugar and trying to eat more cruciferous vegetables, more of a Mediterranean diet can reduce the risk of breast cancer by 30%. What's the incidence of breast cancer in women that have dense breast tissue versus not? Has that been tracked? Yes. So that women who have dense breasts have a two to four times higher risk of breast cancer than women who, who have normal density breasts. And so that breast density is part of that, that, that tyrocusic model I talked to you about. That's put in the, the breast density is part of that model. And that's uh, included in the score to determine the risk for breast cancer. And you also mentioned, obviously, there's many different types of breast cancer, you know, HER2 positive, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So what does that risk profile looks like? In the, in the population, you said, I guess, on average, about 12% will get breast cancer. But what percent tend to have HER2 um, 
positive resonance. No, positive, yeah. re- you know, triple negative. Like, how does that break yes. down? Right. So about, so I'm going to give you averages here, uh, depending on who you read, but about 15 to 20% of patients can have HER2 positive cancer. And about 10% of patients can have triple negative cancer. But the risk of triple negative cancer goes up in African-American women to about 20%. So 80% of cancers are what we call the hormone positive, estrogen positive cancers. But these others, so the HER2 positive cancer will is an aggressive cancer, but is, as I said, the percentage is still lower than the hormone positive cancer. And what about in women with dense breast tissue? You said they're more at risk, but are they more at risk for a particular type of breast Uh, cancer or just overall? That's a great question. I don't think that has been studied yet. So for to date, we don't really think that the breast density relates directly to the subtype of breast cancer. But that would be a question probably that will be, will be answered in upcoming trials, but we don't have that data yet. We haven't seen that anecdotally that patients who have dense breasts have a certain kind of cancer versus the fatty breasts. So, yeah, okay. it'll be interesting. Yes. Um, what, what sites in the breast are the typical like nucleation or starting sites for, for cancers? And again, is like this triple negative tend to occur more in the ducts of the nipple versus the breast mass or vice versa? Okay, so again, this has not been studied extensively, but we do know that, so there are two kinds of cancers in, or two kinds of tissue in the breast that you should be aware of. There's the ducts and the glands, glands where the milk is produced or lobules. So there's lobular cancer and there's ductal cancer. So lobular cancer is the less common as about 10, 10 to 20% of patients may have lobular cancer. And lobular cancer is generally not triple negative and not HER2 positive. So it's usually estrogen positive cancer. So the ductal cancers are the kind that are usually triple negative and HER2 positive. And what about women that have given birth and breastfed? They look for correlations there. Is that protective against breast cancer or not? Yes, definitely. So if you look at the risk factors for breast cancer, and a good resource for that is the American Cancer Society. They've put out a lot of information about it. We have found out that women who have children or have a full-term pregnancy before the age of 30 have a lower risk of cancer than women who have children after 30 or have never had children. And so about breastfeeding also. So the World Health Organization recommends that women breastfeed for at least 6 to 12 months. And that has been found to be protective against breast cancer. Okay. So what, um, what big mysteries are you looking at? with breast cancer? Like, what are you trying to figure out? Right. So I, you know, I, as I told you in my story, I was surgeon, I've been operating. um, And so I've been doing the surgery part, but now I'm trying to get into the role of lifestyle of your nutrition and your exercise in preventing breast cancer. And in women who are uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, how exercise can actually treat their cancer. And so that's becoming my sort of passion and I'm trying to read a lot about it. And then I do lectures to my patients and the community about this because I believe that this is, you know, a, a significant part of the treatment of breast cancer. And that is not really being emphasized um, traditionally up till now. So that's why I, I actually did a fellowship in integrative medicine from University of Illinois with Dr. Andrew Weil so that I can learn some of the skills that are needed to educate my patients about the role of the, of the lifestyle in, their, in the treatment of breast cancer. And there was a study that came out, actually, it's really interesting. It was published in Cancer Journal in May 11, 2020, that showed that 
that women who were exercising two and a half hours a week, which is are the federal guidelines for exercise, had actually a 60% lower risk of dying of breast cancer and had a more than 50% lower risk of cancer coming back, which is a tremendous uh, number. And so we are now, you know, I'm using exercise as a treatment modality for my patients. And I spend time in my office while we are talking about surgery to emphasize exercise. And I will have them start exercising even before the treatment is started just to help us, you know, prevent cancer and prevent the cancer from coming back in these patients. Have you uh, talked to them about dietary intervention, you know, fasting, intermittent fasting, uh, again, ketogenic diets, things like that? Exactly. So, you know, I'm not a dietitian, but we screen all our patients who are who have a heavier weight. So we know that women who are heavier with a higher BMI have a higher risk of cancer recurrence of cancer coming back. And so we will refer them to a dietitian. Our dietitians are generally talking to them about mostly about the Mediterranean diet, which is an easier diet to follow than the ketogenic diets, which are, you know, concentrating more on the fat. And so they're harder to uh, comply with those diets. So we recommend the Mediterranean diet, but obviously if a patient's interested, then we can do the ketogenic diet too. Intermittent fasting, we usually don't recommend while we are starting treatment for breast cancer because, uh, you know, we do need patients to be optimized in terms of their, you know, nutrition and their protein status, et cetera. So we don't want them to be, or, or, and hydration. So we don't want them to get dehydrated. And also we will talk about intermittent fasting after they've completed treatment or we'll talk about it as a prevention for breast cancer because women who do intermittent fasting do have a much lower risk of uh, developing breast cancer and studies have proven that. Well, have you ever taken films, you know, before you do the surgery, they do some kind of intervention, exercise, diet, et cetera. And then when you get in there to do the surgery, you know, the the tumor mass is a lot smaller or different Mm -hmm. or disappeared. Have you observed that? That's a good question. Uh, I'm not working in you know research right now. I did do research during my my residency and prior to that, but uh, that's a that's an interesting question. So ex- exercise and breast cancer is a is a topic that's been studied extensively, and right now it's been studied in women who were getting chemotherapy for breast cancer, and they found that they had the higher you know survival rate and a lower recurrence rate. But I don't think the effects are immediate you know, not as immediate as chemotherapy is. So I think that it's a more of a longer term effect. Gotcha. Than chemotherapy. And what about what, you know, so you're, you're the surgeon, you've seen countless tumors. Um, when you get the pathology reports back, like, you know, does that correlate with what you see? You know, if the tumor yes. looks a certain way, is a certain shape, does yes. pathology tell you a similar story? Like, what do you observe? Yes. So, you know, uh, a surgeon has to have an understanding of uh, radiology and pathology because eventually when we go in to remove the tumor, we, we need to make sure that we remove it completely. So when we look at images with our uh, mammography colleagues, we will then in the operating room try to correlate that with what we see. But remember now, most cancer, it will not be visible to the naked eye because nowadays in the United States, over 60 to 70% of patients have early stage or stage one breast cancer. So that's not visible to the naked eye. So we will sometimes use ultrasound to help us. Uh, but eventually once we remove the tumor, it's sent for pathology. And then we review those cases in our breast conference where we will be given, uh, will, will be shown the images. And usually they correlate really well. The radiology images will 
show us a similar picture as the pathology slides. And then eventually when the specimen is cut by the pathologist, they'll show you a similar picture. So they, the cancer doesn't usually you know, try and trick us. Uh, there are certain kinds of cancers which can be more insidious, sort of harder to find. And those are the invasive lobular cancers where you may not form a mass, where the cells are kind of all spread out through the tissue. And then in that case, we may get uh, surprised when we remove that tissue that, that we have don't have a one tumor mass and there's you know multiple sites of cancer or the ma margins are positive. So invasive lobular cancer can be a challenge for us in terms of uh, making sure that we remove it completely because of the way that it behaves. It doesn't form a mass. It kind of has isolated cells stuck together, not like a mass. When you look at the morphology of the, the tumors that you take out, you know, for HER2 or triple negative, does it look different? You know, do they tend to have certain morphologies depending on the type of cancer? Right. So usually the triple negative cancers are more aggressive cancers. So we call them grade, and they're usually grade three, which means that the nucleus is kind of has a pathology. And I'm not a pathologist, but I'll tell you that it'll, it'll be looking more like a undifferentiated cell, which hasn't really formed a, you know, a certain histology. So you'll see more aggressive features like the, there'll be more mitotic mitosis, which means cells are growing at a fast rate, or there'll be, you know, invasion of the tissues, etc. So the triple negative cancers are more aggressive in that way. HER2 positive uh, cancers can also be grade three. And so you will see a certain morphology, which will, you know, tell us that this is a more aggressive cancer. Yeah, when you look at the uh... The tumors you take out, how do they look versus the normal tissue? Do they look like completely aberrant or yes. slightly so, different? So again, it depends on the on obviously the, the stage of the cancer. So if the cancer is early stage, we may not see anything with the naked eye. But when they cut it, then they will see these, you know, strands of sort of uh, fibrous tissue along with this cancer cells going through the tissue. So there are certain, you know, pathologic features that tell us if it's if it's cancer or not. And sometimes if it's a higher stage cancer, then I can tell because when I cut the tissues, then I feel this hard, gritty tissue under my knife. And then I know that I'm cutting through cancer and I'll make sure that I take out extra tissue to make sure that I get clear margins. But in early stage cancers, generally you don't get that kind of feel with your instruments or with the naked eye. Well, is the breast a popular place for cancer to metastasize or no? Is it usually a site of primary tumors? It's usually a primary tumor, uh, but the cancer can metastasize anywhere in the body. Invasive lobular cancer can go to, you know, anywhere, um, literally anywhere. Even the, I've seen it go to the scalp also, the skin of the scalp. It can go to the, but then it can also go to the lungs and the bone, liver, um, even the abdomen, etc. So, Cancer can metastasize anywhere, especially the breast cancer. Um, but generally, you don't get a get a metastasis to the breast. Sometimes you can get lymphomas in the breast, but that's not that common. Well, okay, so you're you're again focusing on the breast, but you're not uh, resecting metastases at all. You just stick with the breast tissue. No, so we remove the breast tissue. Now, the treatment for breast cancer uh, is based on the stage of cancer. So, if the cancer is stage one and above then we will generally take out lymph nodes in the armpit also just to because that's the first line where cancer can go and metastasize. So we will remove the lymph, one or two lymph nodes doing a procedure called the sentinel node biopsy, where we take out just a, one or two nodes that are going to catch the cancer. 
And that's done for the stage one and above cancers. For uh, early stage or stage zero breast cancers, if we are doing a lumpectomy, then we don't take out lymph nodes. But when we are doing a mastectomy, then we'll take out lymph nodes. But that's generally the site of the resection. Now, if there is metastatic disease and it, is in, it has spread to say only one site in one organ, then rarely they will try and excise it or do some kind of uh, you know, intra-arterial chemotherapy to try and resect the metastatic sites. But generally, we don't excise any sites of metastasis. Okay, well, what, so what do you see as the future of treatment in the next few years and then a bit longer term? I think right now the future is super bright. The, the fact that we are now doing minimal surgery, minimally invasive biopsy techniques, very good cosmetic outcomes, that's, it's fascinating. But the future also lies in genomics. The genes of the tumor will, will determine if a patient gets chemotherapy or not. The future lies in immunotherapy, because as you know, that when you have a cancer cell in our body, the body, body's immune system wants to try and catch it and get rid of it. But the cancer cells develop mechanisms to avoid the immune system. So now we have these amazing immunotherapies out there, which can actually make the cancer most visible to our immune system. And so we can kill the cancer that way. So immunotherapy, genomics, and the use of genetic information about a patient's genes will determine the future, I think, of, of breast cancer. Okay. And then, uh, Rabia, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they so, go? So I am uh, affiliated with the West Suburban Medical Center. And if you go to their website, you know, they'll have information about me. I'm all, you can also find me at the Suburban Surgery Center, which is uh, my group where I practice uh, in uh, Chicago, Elmwood Park. And that's the best way to get hold of me. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Rabia, thank you for coming. I'm, I'm really glad to speak to you. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.